welcome to the Top Order podcast. Well, we said in one of our recent episodes, it was a buzz for us to discover that we've got listeners in places as diverse as Spain, Singapore, Nepal, and even El Salvador. And although the test plane nations, sometimes a select few, tend to dominate the media, we wanted to shine a light on some of the other awesome cricket going on around the world. And to that end, we're delighted to be joined uh, by Daniel Bezit, better known as Bez, one of the founding members of the Emerging Cricket Platform. Daniel, welcome to the Top Order podcast. Cheers, boys. Thanks for having me. Pretty keen to uh, yeah talk some associate cricket with you, the, the Top Order boys. Let's go. As a Top Order bat myself as well, it's uh, good to be on. Yeah, well, look, we've got the irony that none of us are Top Order bats, <laughs> uh, which is, uh, uh, well, yeah, Bordier has got some uh, delusions of opening grandeur from way back in his uh, under-11s uh, cricketing history. But look, um, jokes aside, thanks for joining us on the podcast. We um, have been going for a couple of years, as, as you may know, and I think feel we're a little bit of an emerging nation down here in New Zealand, although we've got um, a Palm and Aussie and a couple of Kiwis in our regular lineup. But, but before we kick into some of the topics, do you want to just tell us a little bit about the platform and, and what your team do over there? Yeah, so emerging cricket, we basically started uh, as a WhatsApp group chat in October 2018, Tim Cutler, who was the ex-CEO of Hong Kong Cricket, uh, saw myself. I was kind of internet friends with him in a, in a kind of a weird setup on, on Twitter where everyone kind of knows everyone in that echo chamber of social media. Um, we discussed a couple of things. I actually was working at Fox Sports at the time and I needed profiles for all the Hong Kong players for the Hong Kong Blitz that we were showing on Fox Sports. So I got in touch with him randomly on uh, one random day and then got talking about, you know, the lack of coverage in emerging cricket and associate cricket. And that kind of uh, snowballed emerging cricket, as it were. And then Nick Skinner, who I actually knew, he actually played for my local club up the road, uh, didn't know that he was Copernicus Cricket on Twitter. And by pure chance, we all met uh, worked out it was Nick and actually didn't realise that we had this affinity for associate cricket. And we basically started Emerging podcast, uh, emerging Cricket Podcast through uh, a WhatsApp chat. And yeah, it's grown to about, I think concurrently, we kind of have between 20 and 25 contributors all on a, on a voluntary basis. We've covered cricket from obscurely as uh, Zambia T10 cricket, Vanuatu T10 Blast. Tim's actually involved in that now because he's the, the CEO of Vanuatu Cricket now. All sorts of, of things around the globe. And yeah, being able to kind of get in touch and get in contact with people from far-flung places around the world to talk cricket. And yeah, we've built slowly. Um, and I'm sure you guys would know building your own podcast, it, it can be tricky at times. But I think the the thing that I kind of take out of it is that, yeah, every so often we get people checking in and saying, look, I didn't know the game was played in X. Or if we connect two kids from a random country around the world and they so happen to play cricket together it's it's a good story and and stuff like that kind of uh, it warms the cockles of my heart and i'm sure it warms the, the people's hearts around who who contribute for emerging cricket as well well look i guess unless you're watching franchise cricket on the tv at the moment it's tough to find international cricket coverage because every international nation you were just saying uh, before we came on the podcast of the major test play nations trying to find an excuse not to play but your homepage even yesterday had a match report from Jersey against the Netherlands in a European under-19 World Cup qualifier. A profile piece on Nathakam Chantham, a key batter for the Thailand women's side. So that coverage is just absolutely remarkable. How do you do it? And how much of the cricket do you actually get to view? And where are you finding all of this on the um, on the web? It, it's, yeah, so I think in the WhatsApp 
group chat that, yeah, started with three of us has now sort of blossomed into about 25. And we just throw out ideas every which way. We've got uh, a Nepali correspondent too, and the Everest Premier League's about to start. So he's about to start covering that as well. Uh, Rod Lyle, who's just passed our record as the most proficient contributor on emerging cricket. I think he has 155 articles on the site now, probably by the time you guys release this. He's retired, a retired journalist. He's done a bit of commentary. He worked, uh, I think, as a uni lecturer in parts of Europe, had a deep connection with Dutch cricket. So he writes a lot of European cricket stuff and he's got uh, contacts there around that. So he's done a bulk of the under-19 World Cup coverage. And then, yeah, you mentioned Thailand and and Nishad Rego, who's one of our, our deep uh, Thai contributors. He was actually the media manager for Thailand during their Women's World Cup, T20 World Cup campaign uh, at the start of last year. And I think he actually got involved with that through his work with Emerging Cricket. So there is actually kind of a, a platform for people who are kind of budding writers or contributors in that space to contribute. And we're always open for for people to, to jump in and, and write some stuff as well. Well, that's fantastic. I mean, there's, there's, it's great to see associate cricket nations getting coverage and, and getting sort of media time. On this podcast, we, we want to jump into the sort of state of the nation as far as associate cricket's concerned. We've spoken with uh, Joe Scuderi about his experiences with Italy. Uh, we were lucky enough to have Shane Dietz on the podcast when he was with Vanuatu Cricket. And both of those guys talked about um, one of their key things for them as associate nations is trying to grow the game outside of those traditional test powerhouses. It'd be great to get your thoughts on the state of the game at the moment at the associate level. What's going on at that associate level? Are we seeing growth in the game? Are we seeing these nations start to emerge? What's going on uh, with those associate nations? So if we decouple it from COVID, because we know how rampant that's been for just about everything, before uh, the pandemic, associate cricket and its structure was actually put in a really good spot. And for all of the criticism that's been thrown at the ICC in the past in regards to organising associate cricket, that actually set up a really good platform and a really good structure for how a lot of the international cricket is to be played out. Looking at it now, in a bygone era with the old World Cricket League days, which was some electric cricket to watch, but it wasn't exactly sustainable for a number of members and players for, for a number of reasons, but they've moved to a new structure now where the tiers work in a way that work around World Cup cycles. And that means that teams as far down as the likes of of Hong Kong, Vanuatu, Uganda in the Cricket World Cup Challenge League, which is essentially the third tier of international one-day cricket, will play a sustainable number of matches over a cycle before a World Cup and still theoretically have the chance to qualify for the 2023 World Cup in India. Now, a lot of the criticism will go towards the number of teams that actually play at that World Cup, which is constricted and probably been the big bugbear of a lot of people inside the the cricket fraternity, especially from the associate standpoint. But at least the structure is in place where a lot of these members now get to play contextual cricket over a period of time that allows them to develop as cricketers and as cricketing nations. And to look at the way that the funding is structured by the ICC, as much as that would need work, like anything in the international game, because we're seeing a lot of different problems being stemmed by COVID and by issues around scheduling and now the, you know, the influx of franchise leagues as well. For the developing nations in emerging cricket, at least there is a platform now to actually play. 
going back maybe five, ten years ago, it was not beyond the realms of possibility that you would only play five, six, maybe eight games of cricket in a year. And now for a lot of these nations, say theoretically ranked from 13th, so the, the highest ranked associate member to say the, the bottom of the top 40, a lot of these countries do have somewhat of a framework as to how they can get from the very bottom to the top. Now we have, I think it's 106 members of the ICC. Now that number kind of fluctuates because nations get suspended and, and sometimes the membership gets revoked. Sometimes they become expelled. Others keep their membership, but they're suspended. So the numbers are always kind of a little bit gray. All of those members now have the opportunity to build into and rise up into those top echelons of international cricket. It is very difficult. I will sort of acknowledge that. And the ICC could probably think of ways to make that a little bit easier. But at least there is a framework underneath that does make it theoretically viable for a lot of these countries to to build and become cricketing powerhouses in their in their own state. It just becomes a case of how much can they go or how far can they go with the funding that they're given uh, by the ICC, which works on a tiered basis based on a number of different factors. And I wouldn't really want to bore everyone by just how many factors they include, but it's all about taking that money that they're given by the ICC, finding sustainable financial income through other sources, and then on the field, building that into high-end development while focusing on, on grassroots development. It's a, it's a very long-winded answer for what was probably a simple question, but I think overall now uh, in 2021 and hopefully in a post-COVID world, the associate game is in a way in a better state than it was, say, five, 10 years ago. And hopefully, you know, and we use the term hopefully a lot, especially on our podcast, because we talk about this kind of utopian way we can see cricket. I think uh, in the future, we will see the growth of more cricketing nations because those platforms are there to be to be built upon. You mentioned sustainability there. You mentioned funding a couple of times. This new structure that the ICC have kind of come up with around these major tournaments, World Cups predominantly, to sort of fund the pathways or provide pathways for associate cricket and emerging cricket, how much of that is actually sustainable country by country? Or are they relying on funding from the ICC to be able to just get a team on the park, get a team on the field to try and play those qualifying matches in the lead-ups to those big tournaments? It's, it's certainly a case-by-case case basis uh, in terms of that question. I've spoken to people who were involved in cricket in, say, Mexico, and they're funded $18,000 US a year, which, as you can imagine, that doesn't really get you particularly far, uh, especially when you have people there who are pr- probably volunteers but probably get some subsidisation, some sort of money to, to kind of help them kind of spend time to develop their cricket while not being completely volunteers on the field yeah it's it's very tricky and for the very very low end members um getting a team on the park is an immense challenge uh we've only seen in the last couple of years the debuts of a number of members of the icc actually playing t20 international cricket because everyone has status and that's something that has changed in the last three years has been the opening of T20 international status for every single member. So you can be Rwanda and play Mali in a women's T20 and it's classed as a T20 international. But we've only really seen that emerge in the last two or three years, a number of these countries actually debuting on, on, on the global stage. And at this stage, yeah, it is still difficult in a number of countries to actually field a team. 
uh, and hopefully, again, to use that that sort of that adverb, which is is one that does get thrown around, that financial uh, disparity between the very top and the very bottom becomes a little less wide and and narrows significantly. There are a number of way a number of ways that that can be achieved, but yeah, at this stage, if you're a very low end member, it's still quite a difficult task. If you moved up to say the Netherlands uh, or Scotland, they're very very close to having a sustainable setup where they can contract players on a full-time basis between 14 and 16 players, both men's and women's. But if you go all the way down to the low-end members of the ICC, that would almost be impossible still at this point. What about women's cricket? I mean, we've seen a lot more women's cricket in COVID times now. You know, Australia, India are playing in North Queensland, New Zealand women are playing England women overseas. But it seems to me... I don't know, maybe I've just picked up on it, a lot more women's associate cricket being played now than there was, say, five or ten years ago. Is that the case? Are we just seeing more of it, or is there actually more women's associate cricket being played as a result of this change in structure from the ICC? I think there has been an influx, and a lot of associate members have actually targeted women's cricket as their their chance to really grow and build into that space. Uh, One of the best stories to kind of give you as an example of this is Brazil uh, basically giving their women's team full-time contracts. Um, Talking to Matthew Featherston in Cricket Brazil, he said it was a no-brainer because the possibilities of Brazil growing and progressing in the Americas in international women's cricket, the chances of them doing that were far greater than on the men's side. And we see with Thailand as well. Thailand are, well, they're a diamond in the rough, essentially. They, They started their international cricket probably about 20 years ago. And the women's team have gone from strength to strength. They basically converted uh, softballers into cricketers and have reaped the rewards ever since. And they're, they're two countries that I can, you know, off the top of my head, give you as an example of, yeah, a lot of, a lot of these nations earmarking women's cricket as the potential for growth. And, and we're seeing that. We're seeing that even with four members now where India are only starting to just realise the importance and even the financial help that women's cricket will bring. I mean, it's an absolute travesty that there's not a women's IPL yet. There's so much talent and quality around the world. An eight-team women's IPL would be one of the easiest competitions to make up. The reluctance from the BCCI is head-scratching, but what they can take from a a number of these low-end associate members of the ICC is that it is a viable way to really build your cricket. And on the financial side of things too, that will look favourably in the ICC's eyes when they do go back to the table and, and reallocate that funding because there, there is a big growth platform by the ICC to really drive women's cricket. And if, if that's the way that it can be done, then associate members are going to be looking at every single possibility and every single way that they can improve cricket in their country, whether it be men's, women's or, or under-19s cricket. Yeah, you mentioned the franchise cricket there. I mean, firstly, a number of Afghani players have now come through the associate system, had massive success in the Big Bash in Australia, huge success in the IPL, Rashid Khan, Mujibur Rahman, Kays Ahmed in particular. But we've seen Singapore's Tim Davids now playing for the uh, RCB in the IPL. There was talk of him maybe even being picked for the World Cup for Australia. What's the pathway for these associate players to these big franchise tournaments? Are franchise owners and sort of list managers starting to take a look at associate cricket to try and maybe cherry pick some of these players for these big franchises? There are, there's definitely a couple of people around who are looking. It just seems to be a case of 
getting on the merry-go-round of franchise cricket, it seems a lot more difficult to jump on the the bandwagon or the merry-go-round than it is to fall off it. And it's something that we've noticed in the past. We've seen so many mediocre full member cricketers play in one franchise league around the world. And just by having that experience in one league, they've basically been morals to be, to pick up another contract elsewhere. So it has been really difficult for a number of these guys. And, and Tim David's in was essentially, he is born in Singapore, qualifies to play for Singapore. His dad played for Singapore, but he played and grew up in, in Australia. He, he is an Australian. Um, he played for Claremont Netherlands in Perth. He was scouted by the Scorchers. So he was basically on the Scorchers doorstep. It made it very easy for him to be noticed. Uh, and the first season that he played in the Scorchers, he was, he struggled. Uh, but it was between the exposure to franchise cricket and then actually playing in the the qualifier for Singapore, the 2019 World Cup qualifier for this tournament upcoming. It really showed his quality, I think, to to more people on, on a grander stage. And then moving to Europe, um, he actually played in the Hoofdklasse, which is the second division of Dutch cricket, made an unbelievable hundred by all accounts. And within weeks uh, was picked up by Surrey in county cricket, I think as kind of a right place, right time kind of situation. And then he exploded. He, he, got, he got the chance and he took it with both hands, made bulk runs for, for Surrey, played in the 100, played a key role in, in winning the 100 uh, for, was it the Southern Brave? I got those 100 teams mixed up, I'm not going to lie. Um, but then, yeah, what what happened after that? You know, there's there's T Twenty cricket in the West Indies, and then he got he picks up the contract with RCB. So, for a lot of these guys, it just becomes a case of well, their stats look good on paper, but the big argument that seems to come from a lot of these scouting guys is that oh, he's only done it at friend at associate level, and those numbers are skewed. So you can average fifty with the bat at a strike rate of one hundred and fifty, playing for Oman and the constant argument back is always, well, yeah, but he did it against X or he did it against Y. He didn't do it against the West Indies, Pakistan, whoever. So it it does become tricky. And and what I'm hoping for this upcoming World Cup is that a number of these teams will enter the Super 12 phase of the tournament after the first round. And there are a number of individual guys, a number of guys around individually for these teams who could definitely do a job at franchise cricket it's just that a lot of scouts and a lot of teams are very reluctant to take them because it's seen as a big risk for them. They would rather take a mediocre West Indian player with 20 T20 internationals to his name, averaging 25 with the bat at a strike rate of 140, than to take someone like JJ Smith, who I believe personally for Namibia is, is one of the players to really look out for in this first round. Probably has a strike rate in the 140s at T20 international level and an average of 30 with the bat can also bowl left arm swing and angle the ball against the right hander. But it's so hard for those scouts to really equate, you know, just just how much we can take into account one side versus the other. It's it's almost an apples and oranges comparison, unfortunately. It's just a case of, well, if you're given that one random chance, can you take it? It also seems to be a very short leash, right? If a player gets picked, say Paul Sterling. Paul Sterling was a good example in, I think it was the PSL when he was first there. And he failed in the first innings that he played in Pakistan. I can't remember what he scored. And I think he was immediately dropped. But if that player was Fakhar Zaman or someone of that ilk, 
it's so hard for a coach to just drop Farkas Aman and just say, look, that wasn't good enough. It's far easier for someone to drop a player like Paul Sterling on the basis of one innings because that's all the the, the data that you think you have on that particular player. It is very difficult and it is, it's much harder to jump on the bandwagon as it is to fall off. Well, we'll definitely come on to the World Cup in a bit more um, detail from a predictions perspective and who to, to look out for. Wanted to touch though a little bit on how important tournaments like the T20 World Cup are for the associate nations. Um, we talk a lot on the podcast about, you know, is that the best format to grow the game? You know, is the Olympics something that should be looked at as, as a vehicle to grow the game? Um, and then I guess the other thing, and COVID's going to play a point of this, is um, we've just got so much cricket going on. And, and what's the risk for the associate nations if those shop windows aren't there for them? Yeah, there's a lot. Uh, there's a lot of layers to that, and, and I'll start with the Olympics. First of all, if the Olympics were sorry, if cricket was a sport at the Olympics, the the positives and the rewards that could be reaped by that by every single ICC member, it doesn't matter who they are, it's staggering. Uh, we talk to so many people from nations around the world, and they try and build cricket, and they try and go to prospective sponsors, or they try to build the game at a school. They try to go into school and, and teach kids how to play cricket. And one of the first questions they're asked all the time is, is cricket in the Olympics? And when the answer is no, we saw it all this year in Tokyo. It's it's so much easier in that 16-day stretch. If your sport is in the Olympics, it is the ultimate advert for your game. You know, I remember growing up thinking, oh, you know what? I fancy myself in badminton you know, or table tennis or something really obscure. And yeah, you, you you look around, you look on the internet, you see if there's a local club, you, you see if there's a chance that you could sort of play at a competitive level and, and see how you go. And for cricket, among all the associate members, it is unanimous that the cricket will have everlasting benefits. That's almost There's almost too many to chuck on a sheet of paper. I could see why there's a reluctance on the full member side of things, that's a completely different argument. But to bring it back to, say, the World Cup, it is at this point still the pinnacle of the game for a lot of these associate members. They don't have full membership. They can't play test cricket. They don't get to experience that five-day battle of attrition. So for many, the World Cups are the ultimate. And if you think of your favourite associate cricket moments, they will undoubtedly be World Cups. Kevin O'Brien and that 100 against England is, is the first one that always comes to mind. Sorry, Binks. Um, Netherlands, again, beating England 2009 T20 World Cup and doing it again in a, in a future World Cup. It's it's the ultimate inspiration for anyone to sit down at a World Cup because people understand how ultimate it is. No one, no one really gives a toss about a three-match T20I bilateral series. It has no context. In five years' time, you're going to completely forget who won that match, who lost that match, who made runs. When it comes down to it, the most important cricket that we get to watch is when there's something on the line, a la a World Cup, an Ashes series. If India and Pakistan ever play test cricket against each other again in either country for whatever reason, that's the stuff that heroes are made from. And for a lot of these associate members, that's where they see their heroes playing in. And, and that's why it was such a kick in the teeth when the World Cup number in 50-over cricket went from 14 down to 10 because 
it was completely against everything that cricket and its global growth vehicles should have stood for, and it went completely the other way. And there are so many examples of players from a number of associate countries who turned around and said, look, there's no future for me in the game anymore. There's no pathway. What's the point of me being here? And that's something we all ultimately all want to sort of rid the game of. Um, and to kind of wrap up, because I am rambling a lot, these are the, the types of things that the huge topics that we talk about at the Emerging Cricket Podcast. It is these key events every two years or every year as we will now have a T20 World Cup into another one. This is This is what gets eyeballs on TV sets around the world outside of the full members. I can only think of the growth that will come from Papua New Guinea being at a World Cup. I think their population is 9 million people. And, I, you know, we've talked to guys who have grown up in Port Moresby for years, can see a TV feed in the Hanabata village of Port Moresby showing cricket to 500 people in the local village all coming out to watch cricket. You know, that's something we've never been able to say or see before. And we need to think, you know, in 20 years from now, what do we want cricket to be? And if it's a global growth vehicle, T20 international cricket, that we want it to be, how big can we make the World Cup? Is this the format that we should be using now? What can we do to build the game outside the game's traditional centres? Because if we keep going the way we are, we're going to have three international teams that play each other all the time and basically price out the game as it is. We're already seeing it now. We see England at the drop of a hat cancel a tour to Pakistan, not on the basis of a security risk. A lot of these rich boards can get away with it because they can. And with that discrepancy comes trouble at the top. In five, 10 years from now, we are a fork in the road right now. In five to 10 years' time, what do we want the game to be? And that's why I think the World Cup and World Cups in general moving forward are so important because it is that opportunity for everyone to come together and build the game holistically. And just listening to you talk, um, you know, no doubt you guys have, have talked about this own podcast, but what, what would a, a, a bigger T20 World Cup, you know, I'm just thinking like a football World Cup, a 32-side T20 World Cup actually look like in terms of competitiveness? Because I, I guess that's always the, the flip side of that argument, right? That what if, you know, Oman, you know, they're, they're in this World Cup, but, you know, Vanuatu, what if they played against... Australia in, in the T20 World Cup, would it actually be something that they would benefit from for a start? And would it be something that, you know, would be a, a product that people would want to watch? That's a great question. And I think I think our collective kind of idea on this and, and opinion on this is that the best way to learn is to do. I take kind of inspiration from the 1999 Rugby World Cup uh, where New Zealand played Japan, and I think New Zealand put 150 points on Japan. Fast forward that 16 years, I think from 99 to, to 2015, Japan beat South Africa uh, in a World Cup fixture. So what has to happen is I think cricket almost needs to cut their losses in a way and say, look, there will be instances where we do have blowouts, and we have blowouts in, in full member matches of international cricket too it's it's very harsh to judge cricket based on one result and it's something that cricket fans do all the time which infuriates me to no end is that they always want to judge based on the last match they played india bowled out for 36 against australia at the start of last summer go on to win the border gavaska series 
And many people probably thought and turned around and said, oh, this Indian team is, is, is rubbish. I can't see them winning any test matches from here on in. They go on and win the series. And I think, yes, there will be instances where we, we do see blowout results. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, the, the only way to improve is to test yourself at the best level. I think for a number of countries and, and at any level, uh, and this is a tiered thing in, in associate cricket as well, where Papua New Guinea, for example, will go to East Asia Pacific qualifying and they will put aside teams of a lesser standard. Um, it's just the way sport kind of works. I understand the thought process behind people not liking change and cricket is a sport where a lot of people seem to think they want to stick to the traditions of the game, even though those traditions of, of cricket have changed, you know, over the years, we've had four ball overs, we've had six ball overs, we've had eight ball overs. Cricket has changed a lot, you know, since it started, we've got three formats of international cricket too. So we're flexible. Personally, my, my personal view is to just look, we're going to have to throw nations in the deep end at some point to see where they go. Um, we saw Japan at the Under-19 World Cup uh, two years ago, well, 18 months ago, and the only reason they actually qualified was because the Papua New Guinea team at the qualification tournament in Japan were actually all detained on suspicions of, of shoplifting. It's a, it's a crazy story, but they were all suspended before the last match of their qualification tournament. They forfeited the match against Japan. Japan won. Therefore, Japan qualified for the World Cup. So they were thrown in the deep end. And the world, the cricket world didn't break when Japan played in a T in, in an under-19 cricket World Cup. They lost, they actually were rained off in a game against New Zealand. So they were briefly top of the, the table. Um, and Alan Kerr from Japan tells a great story about how they were top of the table for all of five minutes. But they weren't humiliated at that tournament. They got the chance to play at the highest level and they knew where to go from there. They knew they could take valuable lessons from that and move forward. And I can't see how it would be any different from something like a World Cup. It's great that there's actually three full members in the first round of this upcoming T20 World Cup, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, and, and Ireland. And if I look at Group A, for instance, and we'll probably talk about it in a minute, I don't think Sri Lanka are morals to progress as a top two team in that group which only tells me just how competitive cricket at this level is now. 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 2003, when Namibia were in the 50 over World Cup for the first time, they were clearly out of their depth. But 18 years from now, we see the next generation of Namibian talent who were inspired by that, that tournament. And they come to this tournament as, as one of the stronger teams in the first round. I think that's probably the best example to give you and, and probably the best way to explain, you know, just how important it is to, to kind of have those eyes and those ears looking at and listening to a World Cup and having your country there participate in it. Yeah, look, uh, we definitely want to want to get into that T20 World Cup nation that's that's been in the news, obviously, at the moment has been Afghanistan. Obviously, there's a lot of political upheaval there at the moment. It's already impacting on their cricket. There's talk that it could end, bring an end to the women's cricket in the region. You know, the men's test against Australia looks in serious doubt. It may already be cancelled. I feel like that's only seems to be a matter of time. You know, I read that the ICC are going to discuss their full member status next month. I mean, how do you see this playing out in, you know, in the next few months? I won't sit here and proclaimed to be an expert on this particular issue. But what I can say is that when Afghanistan were given full membership and it was ticked off by the members of the ICC, 
they were given what was called at the time a, a cultural exemption, which is basically, for a lack of a better term, an understanding or an MOU that we're trying to develop women's cricket, but it's not there yet, but don't stop us from playing test cricket. And one of the issues that I kind of find now when we talk about the state of Afghan cricket and, yes, the the involvement of the Taliban now, that wasn't really considered when a lot of people jumped on the bandwagon of saying, oh, Afghanistan should be banned from international cricket because I think it is actually relatively important that there was that understanding when Afghanistan were given full membership that that was something that they would have to deal with. I don't think they would... <laughs> they wouldn't have felt that, you know, the Taliban would take over the country again. And that's definitely something that would mean that this topic needs to be reassessed. But I think it's a little bit more delicate than a lot of people kind of think. A lot of people have kind of thrown the blanket over it and just said, look, we should ban them from international cricket. We should do this to prevent Afghanistan from building on their international cricket. And I look at a lot of those players and we mentioned them earlier in the in the chat the number of Afghans who have made a career out of cricket and basically escaping a lot of the, the troubles politically in their country. And I think that's a beacon of hope for a lot of Afghans. And I just feel if, if that is to be taken away, then I think it only demoralizes the, the people of Afghanistan further. And that is a difficult pill to swallow because we know how loaded that situation is at the moment, but I kind of cite what Gideon Haig has said a lot about this. He's jumped on it and he's talked to us as well, a great journalist in the, in the cricket fraternity. Why are we trying to cut all the ties here when the sport and cricket has almost a role in in building partnerships, in, in building growth and, and building a brotherhood in, in sport and sisterhood in sport? I find it a little bit difficult personally that we're going to prevent 11 Afghans playing test cricket just because something is happening that's well outside their control. If the board, the Afghan cricket board, is impeded and affected by politics, that's a completely different story. That basically is a breach of their ICC membership. Ergo, they probably should be suspended by the ICC. But ICC has a precedent in the past of suspending nations but not preventing them from playing international cricket. Nepal have been suspended by the ICC, they've still been allowed to play international cricket. I would like a similar situation potentially moving forward if that's the the best way to kind of do it. And we might see a situation like the Russian Olympic Committee at the Olympics where Russian athletes are allowed to compete per the ROC flag. The Russian uh, national anthem doesn't play if they win a gold medal. I think a Tchaikovsky piece played if if the Russians won a gold medal in the Olympics. I can kind of see something similar to that happening in cricket with Afghanistan. Whether or not that's a path that the ICC want to go down, I'm not sure. But, yeah, it's it's definitely not the topic that you can fix in 280 characters on, on Twitter, like a lot of people seem to think it it, it can be. You know, it's it's a, it's a very loaded topic, as is, is Pakistan and security risks there, and they're inextricably linked. Uh, and I don't, you know, proclaim to have the answers here, but that would probably be my movement towards cricketing piece as it were if if something like that was to happen well let's get back to that uh 20 just that t20 world cup i should say in 2021 and we'll go around the grounds so the qualifiers start uh mid-october 17th of october afghanistan are in uh but for anyone else who's not aware there are two groups of four 
that will battle it out for the final four spots out of the 12, I think, is it, that go through and play in that second round of the T20 World Cup. So two go through from each pool. Uh, so in Group A, Sri Lanka, Ireland, the Netherlands, and you mentioned Namibia. And then Group B is uh, Bangladesh, Scotland, uh, PNG, and Oman. So first thing, Daniel, can you give us a, a kind of a couple of names to watch um, from each of those sides, sort of excluding Bangladesh and Sri Lanka, we know a little bit about them, um, and why why you think they'll shine at this tournament? You've kind of touched on one or two already. I think the thir- the first thing I should probably note is that when this tournament was moved from India to UAE and Oman, they actually redrew the groups. Uh, so the groups at first were determined by their finishes at the 2019 qualifier, which meant the groups would have looked markedly different. Fast forward to excuse me, fast forward to to three months ago, they redrew the groups based on ICC rankings. And that actually meant that there was a bit of a discrepancy because Papua New Guinea played no T20 international matches in that that time. And therefore their ranking dropped and was completely different to their uh, finishing position at the qualifier. They actually um, made the make the final they were the first team to qualify from from the tournament so things were a little bit different there and i actually see group a and b a little bit skewed from a team's point of view but to look at the the players go down the list and probably talk about ireland everyone will will talk about paul sterling and and kevin o'brien and understandably so paul sterling come on in leaps and bounds the last five years he's performed at full member level he's played franchise cricket around the world he he won in that in that hundred final as well key player for Middlesex. He is, I think he's climbed to maybe the sixth highest run scoring T20 international men's history uh, the last time I checked. So he's got a lot of experience. And Kevin O'Brien is, well, we've known for for many World Cups now that he seems to be a big game player. Um, He turns up when the chips are down and when it looks like it's all dead and buried. He's the only Irish player to have a Test 100, a one-day international 100, and a T20 international 100 as well. Scored one against Hong Kong a couple of years ago. There's a couple of good young players coming out of Ireland. Gareth Delaney's just come back from injury. He's a leg-spinning all-rounder, hits the ball very hard, and we kind of know that leg-spin is almost a cheat code in, in international T20 cricket at the moment. If you look at the ICC bowling rankings in T20 international cricket, that gives you a pretty good indication. I like the depth of the Netherlands there's they've picked a 15 man squad and I can see 15 players all playing at some point, depending on the conditions and they have a number of match winners. Ryan Tenderskart is going to retire at the end of that tournament, just ended his decorated career at Essex. He's, I think he'll be 41 when the tournament starts, but he just is almost a bit of a Darren Stevens. He, he seems to get better with age uh, we'll probably bat. I don't think he'll bowl. They've actually got a lot of options with the ball and they cover all bases. Peter Saylor is a great leader and he'll marshal those troops really well. He bowls left arm orthodox himself, which is really effective, you know, in these conditions. He's got Colin Ackerman, who's played a lot of county cricket as well. Roloff van der Merwe. And they've got a great pace quartet that actually extracted a lot of life out of the UAE surfaces during the qualifier. Brandon Glover, Fred Klaassen, Tim van der Hoogten, and then you add in Paul Van Makeren, who has had an unbelievable, a, a transformative 12 months. You know, he went from delivering food as an Uber Eats guy in the UK to landing a contract again, I think, with Durham, playing county cricket. And then he played in the CPL um, with some Keats and Nevis. And, and he's actually, as an aside, 
Paul Van Makeren is one of those players that for himself makes things happen. When we talked about earlier guys who struggle to jump on the merry-go-round of T20 franchise cricket, one of the issues that a lot of associate players have is they can't afford an agent. They can't afford a manager to, to help organize deals like that. Paul Van Makeren, in, in the best way possible, is a hustler. He will find every single way to improve his career and himself as a person, like he did when he was forced to deliver Uber Eats food in the UK on a bike. Um, and that's something that we should probably factor in when we talk about a lot of these guys not getting franchise contracts. But to kind of – I'm digressing a little bit here. Sorry, boys. I love a good old ramble about these sorts of things. But to look at Namibia um, – JJ Smith is a player that we brought up before. He's just an archetypal T20 international cricketer who could beat anything in the sport. He swings the ball both ways as a left arm quick. He angles the ball away from the right hander. And he's developed his batting to a point where he will probably bat in the top five for Namibia in this tournament, whether it's coming in at the very back end of an innings. He hits inside out sixes for fun. If you go back and watch the qualifier, He's hitting the ball into the stands in all of the grounds in UAE. Absolutely magic to watch. And he's quick on the short ball too. Um, there's a slogan around associate cricket that Smith can hit, and it's uh, it's certainly true. Uh, he's going to be a key player for Namibia. And then David Visa now qualifies for Namibia through, I think it was his father was Namibian. He hasn't played international cricket since 2016 for South Africa. He'll be kind of added in. I'm not sure how they're going to fit him in. He'll obviously play because he's good enough to play. It'll be interesting to see where Herat Erasmus, the captain, puts him. And then Erasmus himself is an unbelievable cricketer. If he's not the best bat in associate cricket, he's probably in the top three technically. And he's an aggressor as well. I think um, there might have only been two players who scored more runs than him at the qualifier. I had a look at this the other day. One of them was Sterling for Ireland and the other one was Jatinder Singh. To look at the other group, Oman is an interesting one. I don't know how they'll go. They get to play all their matches at home at the Al Amarat facility, which is obviously a leg up, but they're a very inconsistent outfit. I think I looked last night. They've played 35 T20 internationals in the last three years, and they've lost 19 of those matches, including one to Qatar at a, a Western Asian Cup T20 qualifier. So they're a bit... Inconsistent is probably the best word to use, but they are reliant on a couple of players. Uh, Bill Khan swings the ball around corners. York is at will. I'm really interested to see how he goes. And then Jatinder Singh, a uh, very aggressive bat. He does the thigh five, the Sheikha Darwin celebration as well. I'm, I'm not sure what the significance of that is, but he's electric at the top. And they're two players for Oman that are crucial. Scotland are a well-rounded team. Um uh, Richie Berrington and Safian Sharif have stepped up in the recent series against Zimbabwe, but they've got a number of match winners. Callum McLeod will probably need to step up with the bat. He's a great sweeper, which makes him good for conditions like this, especially against spin bowling. And then at the top of the order, Kyle Kutzer will, will lead from the front. I'm a little bit worried about their bowlers. And then Papua New Guinea, uh, unbelievable story qualifying for this tournament. And a lot of their success will be dictated by how well they go at the top of the order. Asad Vala, the captain and Tony, you're uh, electric. I think they had an average opening partnership at the qualifier of over 60, which, you know, tells you how important they are for, for that side. And then with the ball, uh, Charles Amini, a leg spinning all rounder. I like the look of him. Um, I think he'll go well. He's got a couple of good scores to his name as well. They're a little bit short on the bowling. I think Nasana Pakana bowls some decent left arm swing, 
but yeah, the top of the order for Papua New Guinea will be uh, crucial for them. Right, it's time to put your hard-earned on the line, Bez. Who's going to go through from each group? Okay, I have stayed awake at night thinking about this because a number of people have asked me this question already and I feel... I don't feel great about giving a definitive answer here, but what I'll, I'll start with Group B, and I'll say that Bangladesh are at 99% chances of qualifying for the next round. I think it's a toss-up between Scotland and Oman for the second spot. Uh, as much as I love Papua New Guinea, I think they're probably a little bit too reliant on the top two in their order. If they lose a wicket early, I think they'll struggle. I'll go with Scotland just because I think they're the more reliable out of the two teams there. So I'll say Bangladesh and Scotland in Group B. Group A, I have toyed with this one a lot. And I think any combination and permutation is possible in this four. And I don't think Sri Lanka are morals to progress. I think they will progress. I think they'll probably find enough to to get through. They might not necessarily finish first. And look... I still don't know. I think I like the Netherlands the best out of the other three only because they've got a bit more depth collectively and I think their bowling is marginally better than Ireland at the moment and I think bowling will win you more games of cricket at this level at a World Cup. I'm interested by Namibia. I think they've got X Factor. I fear that the three opponents are very difficult. Um I'm a big fan of them. If they're in the other group, I would have said they're almost guaranteed to progress. But in this group, I think they'll struggle a little bit. So hand on heart right now, I think Sri Lanka and the Netherlands are progressing Group A. Awesome. Well, not long to go until we find out. Um, all kind of um, health crises and yeah. um, other political things that are going to be well out of control uh, withstanding. Before we go, we want to get you to look into that crystal ball again. But I've just got one other thing I want to uh, go into before we get there. And that's we've just seen Jade uh, Dernbach, um, who, when he was playing for England, my little brother used to refer to as Jane Dernbarkle, um, just because c- he seemed to find a way of uh, uh, losing England games at the death. But he's declared his allegiance for um, Italy. We, we've talked with Joe Scuderi, who's there uh, for many years. We've got plenty of examples, the likes of John Davison, Ryan Tendershato, you mentioned Dirk Nannis, Tom Cooper, Logan Van Beek, um, all playing for, you know, associate nations. Two parts of the question, the guys have, you know, asked me one, one of these to, to pose to you, and that is how many more former players um, or international cricketers do you think we'll see rejoining associate nations? And what what's what's the sort of reception that those guys receive when they do and go and you know apply their trade for another another country. Yeah, the reception. I'll talk about the reception first. And there are definitely pockets of the associate world who don't particularly enjoy it. But at the same time, they always seem to come from the places where a lot of these players don't go. So it is an issue that I think transcends cricket because a lot of the time. And we're seeing it now with an influx of players actually moving to the US. And, and I'll probably talk about that more in the, in the second part of the question. But it seems to be a case of it's the haves and have-nots here. And my opinion is, is that players are only abiding by the regulations and the playing conditions that the ICC have set out. If they can use them to their advantage, 
I'd like to see all the the power given to the player. I mean, player welfare is is huge, and I think look, if you can make the most of those rules and you qualify, then I think it's fair fair play. It's all above the table. Everyone knows what's happening. Uh, yeah, Jay Dernback is is a player that I had personally had no idea had any affiliation or any heritage or connection to Italy. But look, for a he lot once of these, went associ- to a Pizza Express, I think. <laughs> it's one of those things where look if if you're an associate member and you can make the most of the rules and the cards that you've been dealt then honestly why not personally um and we see it around the place there there are a number of guys uh playing for germany as well uh craig um machete as well from glamorgan has been playing there dita klein too i'd love to see benny howell play for france because he was born in i think he was born in marseille and, and i'd love to see it if he never plays for england but yeah, it's a case of there. There is pushback, um, and it, and it does come from places where they don't really see the benefits of this, or they don't really understand that people can actually have more than one nationality. Then I, I don't know about you guys, and and I actually don't really have much heritage outside of me being a boring white Australian. But I think if I was of different heritage. I would personally love to play for, if I qualified for Italy and I've had Italian heritage, I think I would feel Italian. And I think that's a big part of it as well. But again, to bring it back, I think if you qualify and you fulfill the ICC regulations and requirements, then yeah, personally, I think it's fair game. As for how many more players will do it, I think it's a growing trend. And I think it's something that will probably go up a little bit further before it comes back down or before the ICC changed the rules. So it's currently three years uh, to reside in a country and therefore qualified that way. Uh, and then there are sort of uh, heritage exemptions, passport holding, citizenships, etc. It's going to happen more in different pockets of the associate world. And we're seeing it at the moment in the USA where they're making a big drive at the moment. Uh, minor league and major league cricket has just started in the USA and it, to be honest, it looks like a booming project. And it's the one thing that USA Cricket has actually missed in the whole time they've ever tried to make cricket big in the States is a big domestic structural competition that somehow garners and galvanizes all the collective talent in the USA into one place. There's never been a problem with participation of cricket in the USA. It's always been a case of bringing it back to the national level. And it's always been difficult picking a team because of that. Now there's somewhat of a domestic structure. And if you talk to some people in some pockets, they say that Cricket USA is you know, receiving a bunch of ICC funding um, and they're being able to actually spend it on players to relocate. The relocate. Liam Plunkett's heading to the States um, to move with his partner. I don't think he wants to qualify or play for the USA. He just wants to play minor league cricket and, and just move for better opportunities. So... There are definitely pockets of the world that we will see this happen more before it goes down uh, and before the ICC changed the laws. And again, if it helps build the game in associate countries, I don't think we're really in a place to, to really criticise it. It just seems to be the places that don't really get to see that benefit. They seem to be the ones that, that seem to be making the argument against it. Awesome. Well, the cricket, the crystal ball question um, is going to come next. And yeah, interesting. You mentioned the USA. I'm the one on the podcast that makes bold claims with no statistical analysis or um, backing. And I think I said when we were talking about the Olympics that I reckon the USA would win a, uh, an Olympic medal in cricket or a World Cup within the next 30 years. 
Um, and then I think I backtracked and said maybe 40. Um, <laughs> but yeah, with that crystal ball, is there a, you know, a side that's around the, uh, or just outside those test playing nations, associate nations that you think are a real dark horse and um, to have a, you know, a major run to a World Cup in the next sort of, um, I guess, 15, 20 years? If USA cricket sorts their issues and they manage to overcome those logistical hurdles of bringing cricket all together, I think the sky is honestly the limit. And I'm sure a lot of people have said that in in times gone by when talking about cricket in the USA. But there's too much money and there's too much talent in the country to go to waste. And there is a bulk of immigration to the USA as well. And, and we can't pretend that that's not going to be a factor. I, I know for a fact that in the States, there's a, there's a big West Indian community. There's, there's big Indian Pakistani communities as well. And cricket will follow cricket will follow in the footsteps there's no question of that and if they have the exposure of watching high level cricket in the USA then again they'll see a, a platform and be what they they're currently seeing it's the same as as what we all talk about in women's cricket now that with the women's 100 women's international cricket there's a viable pathway that people can see and that to a the lower level of associate cricket we're going to see stuff like that happen in the USA i look at nepal as well and Nepal has 30 million people. Uh, there's never been a shortage of playing talent. You can go to a random net session in the outskirts of Chitwan in Nepal, and there's kids there who are just gun bowlers and batters, and there just doesn't really seem to be a proper pathway to move from junior ranks into senior cricket. Now, with, again them not being suspended by the ICC anymore, there's potential for there to really boom too once they get their ducks in order and, and the board sorts themselves out. It always seems to be, it always seems to come to come back to issues around the game's governance in that prospective country and how that money is assigned and then how much funding they do get. But yeah, I would sort of look at those two. And, and the other one I'd probably mention as well is Germany. Germany have had a huge influx of, uh, population from the Middle East, um, a lot of asylum seekers, and, and they've seen a huge exponential growth in cricket over the last 10 years. And they've streamed a lot of it too, which basically unlocked the metrics for them to say, look, we've got a lot of people that play cricket in the country. There's actually a lot of potential here. And they've been able to galvanize their national team through that and then through a sprinkling of talent who come from county cricket who just so happened to qualify for Germany. So I'd probably put those three teams in that bracket. There will undoubtedly be a couple of others. I look at Malaysia and Singapore in that sort of hotbed of, of cricket in, in Southeast Asia as a potential platform as well. And then Nigeria and Japan who played in an under-19 World Cup. You know, Nigeria has 200 million people. You know, just on the balance of probabilities and, and the laws of averages, you would think that they'd be able to put out 11 outstanding cricketers. And the same goes for Japan. Uh, Sano, they've literally built a cricket city in, in Sano. There's an entire cricket facility. The high-performance offices are there. The administration offices are there. There's kids in that who have grown up as five-year-olds uh, in Sano to go on and play under-19 Cricket World Cup. Um, play for Japan. So they've got their ducks in order too. So they're, they're just yeah a handful of, of countries that I can see growing. 
and then we'll probably see the growth of, of the likes of Thailand again and, and other countries of that ilk who focus on the women's game as well as their platform for funding and, and other things. But I am a romanticist when it comes to this. I don't think I'm as, as cynical as a lot of people. I think there are positives there, but it does come with the preface that it needs to happen the, the best way possible and it needs to happen through not only the ICC but all of these boards making sure that they look at every single option of growing the game in their country because just one answer, just parachuting players in or just focusing on the youth or just focusing on the high performance end isn't going to fix it. You need that holistic platform and, and growth to really drive the game in, in your respective country, I think. That's an awesome way to end the podcast for us. I think, yeah, all given us a little bit of a lift that there's you know so much quality in those um, associate nations. I think the only thing that I'm going to re- remember from that last little segment, though, is that Germany um, are going to be a World <laughs> Cup nemesis in yet another code for my um, my home English team. We're going to lose on a, a penalty shootout or a bowl out to them. Super at some over point. masters of 2020, it, 2050 it, or something. Exactly. Um, look, before you do go, uh, tell our listeners where they're going to find the podcast and, and the emerging cricket team. Yeah, we're just the Emerge Cricket Podcast. You can find us on Spotify, Apple, basically wherever you listen to your podcast. And EmergeCricket.com is our website where, yeah, we, we feature a lot of stories of the game. We've got a big program coming up with the T20 World Cup and we'll have plenty of um, plenty of discussion, plenty of articles and plenty of chat in regards to all of that. So, yeah, make sure to, to head over, over there. And, uh, yeah, thanks for giving me the chance to uh, give a, a little plug. No worries. Well, all the details will be in the links accompanying this episode. But for now, it's good night and God bless from us all here at the Top Order Podcast. And uh, thanks a lot to you, Bez, as well for for joining us and uh, yeah, having a good old uh, chinwag about associate cricket, which is in a very healthy state. Thanks very yeah. much. I can't wait for whoever has to edit this. Sorry, boys. I've, I've, <laughs> I love a good ramble. <laughs>